Well, welcome, Michael. I know you're from, uh, she said, you're from Philadelphia. Philadelphia. Okay, so you're from back east. Mm -hmm. So I imagine at this time of the year, it's, uh, let's see, we're December, what's today's date? December? December 2nd. December 2nd. Into the Christmas season. Into the Christmas season. I mean, I, we've been hearing uh, Christmas music since the 1st of November, which I think is just totally ridiculous. Yeah. But anyway, is it it's cold and snowy back there? Um, we've had one snowfall so far, but mostly just cold and wet, like 35 degrees where you just get miserable cold. <laughs> yeah, a little bit of snow. You guys are in the heavy coat weather and... And not too much yet. I mean, no. for us, it's 35 is not too bad. Uh, you know, it's, 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 it's a medium jacket. Yeah, but he wears 35. Boy, yeah. put that on, and that's freezing. Um, so the nature of this show is we talk about basically space-themed things, especially we've been running kind of a, uh, an ongoing series where when we restarted, we launched talking about um, habitats. Then we talked about toilets, we've talked about water filtration. This time we're kind of going to bring it together a little bit. We want to talk about what a biome is. Now, before I, before we get into that, though, I want to get into some of your background so that we know who who is this guy from Philadelphia. I mean, uh, we've done things together before, so I know who you are, but tell us a little about yourself. Okay, well, I'm a nuclear controls technician at a local nuclear plant. Uh, prior to that, I've been there a number of years. Before that, I was an applications engineer in the nuclear field. Um, I do a lot of science fiction writing, and I did a number of years with the uh, Air National Guard and the Air Force as far as uh, being a weapons crew chief. Oh, so, wow. So I get to travel the world, see a lot of things, see... Are see you following what they've been doing with the troops down on the border lately? Oh, absolutely. Oh. Uh, i got friends down there. Oh, <laughs> goodness. Okay. Yeah. So, okay. So you've, you've been around... A few blocks. <laughs> yeah, diff different cultures, different environments, uh, you know, different landscapes. You, know, you get a chance to experience different things uh, as far as like if you're in the mountains versus in the jungles mm -hmm. versus in the desert. And, oh, yeah. You, know, you kind of get a chance to use your creativity and your imagination as far as... Well, absolutely. You know, you were in applications uh, development within the nuclear field. I actually spent 20 years as a applications programmer in, in business software for many years. And so... We both share this aptitude of an engineering outlook in a lot of things. And um, now that uh, I'm in my older years, I'm now learning that life isn't all about computers and cell phones and Twitter and Facebook. It's actually making things work. And I, I know that where you're at right now at the plant, you're actually solving a lot of problems as well as I do in my handyman service. So tell us a little bit about, uh, you were telling me earlier about a project you did that um, saved a whole lot of maintenance heartache with uh, what was that? Uh, yeah, we, limit switches. Limit switches, yes. We went, we got away from using micro switches with the little bullet plungers, uh, going to um, the magnetic switches with the, with the reed switches inside them. Yeah, we had them qualified by Oak Ridge Labs and built, you know, designed a case for it and installed them in the plants. And, uh, so if I remember from your conversation, yeah. the biggest problem with the limit switches is that there was actually some like a cable or something that would run across the limit switch and it had like a, a bead or something on it and it would bump up against a bullet on the switch and cause it to close. And so then the bullet would pass off as that item clears and another one comes down the line, right? That's correct, yes. So, so you guys had to, you had to lubricate these lines on a regular basis and that lubricant would then gum up the system. 
Correct, yes. So when you came up with the idea for the magnetic read switch, mm -hmm. you eliminated the lubrication, mm -hmm. you eliminated physical contact, and by eliminating those, you eliminated moving parts. Correct. It became more of um, um, more of a much simpler system with a much more efficient result. Maintenance free. Maintenance free. <laughs> oh, those are perfect. Those are wonderful. Yeah, especially, especially when you work in containment. Maintenance oh, free yeah. is a good thing. <laughs> and then, of course, containment being a word specifically relevant to nuclear mm -hmm. plants. What does that yeah. mean? That is when you're actually working inside the, uh, uh, what everybody sees in the pictures, the domes. Oh, okay. You're working inside there. Uh, that's, that's, you've, that's you've got the whole suit on and the gloves. and Yeah, for, for contamination. Uh, you're in there, the reactor's in there. You have all the other components in there. Uh, well, if the reactor's in there, how come you're not coming out glowing green like Homer? <laughs> well, it depends. There's areas you can go in there. There's areas you stay away from. There's uh, your high rad zones that are really dangerous. And most of the time, you know, it, it takes an awful lot for us to have to go into one of those danger zones. It's a big deal. Uh -huh. you, just, it, you just don't go in there. So most of the areas we work at are relatively safe. Well, that, that brings up a question. One of the things that, that I have been talking about on this show and on uh, other shows in the series is that since the goal of Earthseed, the sponsor of the show, is about settling in space, the challenges that we face with technological solutions to make them survive over time becomes problematic when we look at a lot of the technological solutions. Now, you brought up something here just a second ago that makes me wonder. Um, one of the things that I've talked about in my book and, and also on the website is that a biome, a way to recycle the food, water, and air uh, without using heavy technological solutions. We still need technology. We just don't need a heavy one. But you bring up a point that I've often wondered about. These areas in the plant where the, the rads are too high, you can't go in them. How long are those areas essentially, problematically sealed from human interaction? I mean, the plant is built, and when you fire up the reactor, it's what? Just a very short time before that area becomes unusable? Uh, there's a difference. So you have your contamination, and then you have your radiation. Uh, when you have contamination, that could be anything that becomes radioactive. It could be dirt, it could be uh -huh. oil, uh, grease, anything like that. And that's where that's the kind of thing that lingers. Uh, your actual radiation, or when the the reactors shut down, uh, most of that goes away. Oh, really? Yeah. So you know, you're, in that respect, you know, you're you're okay. Uh, you still have to watch a lot of your pipes where you're running through um, a lot of your uh, reactor coolant. Things well, I guess I'm confused then. So you have areas that you would go into and work in a maintenance mode, taking care of uh, well, replacing switches or valves or servicing equipment, that type of thing. But you also mentioned that there's areas you don't go into because of the high red environment. That's is that because the plant or the, the reactor is running? And the bulk of that high red environment is because the reactor is running. That's correct. Yes. Yeah, so you have your, uh, for instance, your reactor coolant pumps are inside a bio shield, and the bio shield that's pretty much the no no zone. Okay. Uh, even when we first shut down, you, you need uh, it takes a few days before the levels come down to a safe enough level to go in there. Uh, yeah, that's, that's one of those things you avoid that as long as possible. You know, just because of the dose rates in there. Now, with the reactor coolant pumps, you still have your pipes are they're still full of coolant. So even though the reactor is not, you know, at power, 
it, it takes it does take a while there. I mean, they don't drain those pipes. Oh, so okay. that's where they're still radioactive. Or at least yeah. the water in them is. Yeah. And of course, I imagine if the water sits there for any length of time, the pipes become radioactive. They will. Uh, to some degree, yes. And I mean, that's why we wear the dosimeters uh, the okay. uh, to make sure that you know, there's areas we have our lab uh, radiation physics people. They'll go in and they'll monitor the areas and they'll, they'll let us know before we're going to do a job. Uh, they have teledetectors where there's maybe 10, 12 feet long where they'll reach into an area and they'll tell you uh, the dose rates are too high, do not go near there. And okay. they'll usually fly, uh, rope it off with a danger sign there. Oh, okay. So, uh, but, so that's one way of being aware of your surroundings there. And, and that's pretty much what it is. Whether you're in a nuclear reactor or you're on a cave on the moon, it's about being aware of your situation. Correct, yes. Okay. You were also telling me about something, and one of the things that I've talked about many times is the approach that we take in the challenges that we face, whether it be here on Earth or whether it be on the moon or even on Mars, um, that... The way that we approach the task. Now, the example that you pointed out, and we were talking about the types of screws that were chosen for a panel. And you had, well, tell us, tell us the story you were talking about, what you ran into. Actually, we one particular panel that's used in all the power plants. Uh, the older version, the original version, uh, had probably, gosh, probably about 45, 50 uh, number 10 screws in it. Now, if you can imagine where I'm What kind of a head was on these screws? Uh, like a Phillips head flat, or flathead, uh, slotted. So just you know, flat blade screwdriver. So imagine doing this, and you're uh, trying to get all these screws out with your gloves on. Okay. Yeah, it's a, it could be a pain in the neck. So one of the things we tried doing was going to uh, the quarter turn screws. Well, this way you could just go right down with just like almost like a like a, a machine motion. Oh, and we see those in the electrical field on the breaker panel boxes. Yeah, they're using it's, it's usually a common common headed mm -hmm. screw, and you yeah. put your screwdriver in, and it's just a quarter turn, and it releases, and, it releases, and, boom, 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 and you're done. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Now you don't have to worry about dropping screws. And the yeah. biggest fear we have in containers, you don't want to drop something that goes down into the containment sump. Or an electrical yeah. panel, yeah. you take a screw loose and it falls down inside the panel, gets caught across two contacts, boom. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah, so yeah. I understand that. Again, that goes towards situational awareness and being aware of what's going on not only around you now, but uh, as a handyman, I go into people's homes all the time and I have to look at a situation and, and glean some sort of a solution for whatever the problem is. One little stupid thing that I have found is that, you know, the exhaust fans in people's bathrooms, did you know that those are actually repairable? Absolutely. And in a lot of them, they just get filled up with dust. Then mm -hmm. dust collects around the shaft. The shaft then grains it into the bearings. Mm -hmm. And if you remove all that dust and clean it out, they get almost whisper quiet. Yeah. And and just one or two drops of oil on the shaft, mm -hmm. and then they become and then they're good for another four to five years. That's right. Instead of paying, uh, what is it? I think I think the current rate for those fans is around twenty dollars mm -hmm. for a replacement motor. Yeah. And the bottom line is, for the homeowner, you've got to pay somebody to take the thing down, mm -hmm. clean it up, and put it back. And if you're going to replace the motor, not only do you pay them to take the fan down and put it back up, but now you got to pay them to go buy one, plus the $20 to get the motor. So now you're paying twice as much to service a fan motor when you couldn't. And again, this is it's, it's all about having 
taking the moment to really look at the thing and what is what is a prudent solution rather than like with the bolts, analyze it, what's your failure point? Exactly. That's typically the bearing. There you go. You know, I, I have a love-hate with engineers. You know that. We've talked about this. Um, so often, lighting engineers will create fixtures. And many people have run into this. You go buy these wonderful, absolutely gorgeous lights for your kitchen. Mm -hmm. And 13 months comes and goes. And all of a sudden, one of the globes on your kitchen light breaks. And so you toddle, you take the old, one of the good globes with you, you go down to the lighting store, and you hand to the guy, say, I need one of these. And he says, oh, well, we don't make those anymore. But I bought this 13 months ago. What do you mean I can't get parts for it anymore? And that it's a common thing that they deliberately design products to force you to replace the entire product rather than just fix a part. There's a term for that. It's called planned obsolescence. Absolutely. Uh, the oil industry used it for quite a while. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they st I think they still do. And yes, I think they, they do. do. Even though the warranties have gotten longer, mm -hmm. uh, I, I think that uh, I think it's just a mess. But when we, you know, I, this is, I think, a, a growing problem that we suffer from in our world. And now, now you as a nuclear engineer, and you've been in the business a long time, I'll bet you see an outgrowth of this behavior that I'm seeing in homes. I've actually had customers tell me the guys come into their homes to fix things and they don't know what they're doing. That is so true. Um, in web design, uh, we were talking earlier today about how um, when I designed my other website, Weavers of Dreams, many years ago, I used techniques that are no longer used today. And while those techniques are very sound, they're very dependable, and they work very well, people today have no clue how they work. Now, in your field, do you run into the similar problems that the new guys coming out of school have no clue about the real world? We do, and it's not just in relation to the work. It's kind of how they look at everything. If something don't work, you, you your car doesn't work, you take it to the dealer, let him figure it out. It might be a simple fix. Uh, the same thing like we said with the fan, yeah, the bathroom oh, yeah. fan. I mean, take it down and look at it you know, before you decide what you want to do or not do. Now, obviously, you've got to have a little bit of common sense. You don't want to try to play with it while it's running or right. where the wave comes in and turns the switch on where you got your hands up the whole oh, yeah. so, so you have to have a little understanding of safety. But uh, a lot of people have gotten into the mood where just Google it, and Google will figure it out. Well, you know, that goes another step. I, I was driving along the freeway one day a few months ago, and I happened to notice, not one, not two, but there were five vehicles along the roadway as I was driving into town. And I happened to notice every one of them um, was mostly, they were mostly a gentleman. Uh, the guy was standing at the back of the car, and I could see that one of the two street side tires was flat. Now, it could be blown, could the air could have just gone out, and so forth. But here they were, standing, talking on the phone, obviously waiting for somebody else to come and deal with that tire. And I'm sitting wondering, okay, Here's the reality of that, and correct me if I'm wrong on this assessment, but you get on the phone, it takes you probably five to ten minutes to get through to a service company who is then going to tell you, okay, do you have a flat? Do you have a spare? Yes, I have a spare. Do you know where it is? Yes, I do. It's in my trunk. 
Um, and then they say, okay, well, it's going to take our tow truck 45 minutes to get to you. It will then take the tow truck driver 15 minutes to 20 minutes to change that tire. You've now just spent an hour and a half to two hours just to get somebody there for a job that you can do yourself in about 20 minutes, right? And then about a take change tire? Yeah. But you think about it, when we were kids, when we were learning to drive at 16, our fathers, that was one of the things they taught you. Here's how you change a tire. I remember I've talked to several women over the years, uh, older women, who their dads taught them change a tire, change the oil, um, and a couple of other things. Check the battery, check yeah. the coolant. Um, and what, always, if you, what, if you break, what if you break down there's no coverage? Yeah. You, can't, you can't call anybody. Exactly. Yeah. We've become so dependent on our technology that I really fear for what's going to happen in the next few years. Uh, preppers talk about uh, SHTF. Do you, you have an idea what that means, right? I've heard it, but I'm not familiar with it. Uh, something hits the fan? Oh, okay. <laughs> you remember the old airplane movie, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, the most common one I know is RTFWTF. Okay. Run to failure, what the... Okay, yeah. let's stop there. <laughs> right, okay. And in the preppers and the survivors talk about being prepared for times when services, utilities, resources that we depend on today, like the grocery store, the gas station, cell service, are no longer available for some reason or another. Imagine Japan after the Fukushima incident. Oh, yeah. The people that were far enough outside the, 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 plume, the plume zone there, uh, they still had to survive. They had no power. They had, uh -huh. they had nothing. Everything was washed out by the tsunami. Wow. So you really had to, you have to learn fast. Well, and I know that when the hurricanes hit the Gulf Coast, there were several times, I mean, that we've had uh, entire regions, portions of states, totally dead as far as any kind of services or materials and things like this. And, and I don't believe people are prepared. No, everybody assumes that you're never going to have a worst-case scenario. It's always somebody else. It's always going to be somebody else. You know, and we experienced that this, this past summer with a, uh, a fire across the street that was big enough it forced our evacuation. Mm. And we didn't realize how serious this was until we were sitting six blocks away in my truck, and we realized if our house catches fire, all we have is what's in the truck. Yeah. You know, so it kind of made us reconsider. We keep right. go bags. There you go. I used to think it was funny when you heard about people with go bags. Mm -hmm. But really, I mean, there's, you don't have to have everything in it, but there's things that you need to have. Where so you need to have help you do other things. Yeah, things like prescriptions. Uh, things oh, yeah. like if, if your laptop is that important, if you have things on there that are, you're really dependent on, well, you make sure the laptop is close to the go bag so you can just shove it in there right. and get out the door. You know, the case we have, the batteries, the door, let's go get out, you're leaving now. Batteries, batteries matches, a couple, two days, three days, supply of canned goods and, and, yeah. and granola bars. Yeah. You know, all the little things that could make life more palatable if you're stuck yeah. in an emergency shelter. Yeah. Bottle of water, you know, keep you a, even if you just keep a couple nearby enough yeah. to, so, so you can, until you can drive someplace where you can get more. Right. But everybody figures it's, a lot of people, they look at it, well, I'll call an order and it'll get delivered. Or, exactly. Well, in a crisis that big, oh. nobody's coming. <laughs> and we are so close to that now. I mean, grocery stores are delivering uh, groceries to home. Um, yeah. Do you have to order from a restaurant? Take yes. that and deliver it. That happened with fire situation in San Francisco. Right? Yes. We had, uh, and in fact, 
to get an idea of just how bad it can get. There was a TV series some years ago called Sequest DSV. I remember Sequest. It was yeah. it was a fancy submarine. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was a techie kind of show. Stars, uh, it was a sci-fi. It was kind of interesting in the future. But one one of the episodes they described took them to an island, and when the the the, the team gets up on the island, all of a sudden they're attacked by this great big huge mechanical robot. And it's shooting at them, and they're trying to figure out what the heck's going on. And finally, they get away from the robot, and they're starting to track the signal because they realize it's remotely controlled. Well, to make a long story short, they find two teenagers in this town. They are the sole survivors of the entire town. They are each in their own home, in their, in their bedroom. And they find a central computer repository, a library, and so they, they start conversing with the library and they figure out that what had happened is is that the residents of the town had become so dependent on being isolated as people. Their food, their water, their utilities, everything was delivered to their units so they didn't have to go out. Ergo, they didn't have to socialize. Ergo, they had no clue when people were dying because robots were blowing up their houses because they were playing a video game that had built the robots by virtue of the computer doing the stuff for them. Well, if you look at the culture today, if somebody's laying on the ground and they need help, uh, you'll see another person come by. Will they help them? No, they're going to videotape them. The differences are scary and and scary. And they don't understand that that's not the right thing to do. But the culture today is, well, 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 take a video of it, take a video of it. Well, how about get involved, you know, help solve the problem, help the person. Exactly. And that's not only scary. But as, as we look at that, it creates a sense of dependence on the technology or on the assumption that there are enough of us that somebody will come along and help them. I don't have to. And we've lost, I think, um, the mindset that puts us back to what you and I do as a form of living. I'm working on things that in the biome and in Earthseed to make us more self-sufficient and less reliant on technology. You, within the nuclear uh, industry, are working on ways to make it less dependent on constant maintenance and and more maintenance-free to help it function more smoothly over the long term. Um, I think we're losing in the younger people because of their dependence on these things. If you think back, when we were in school, when we were in grade school, we had the Apollo missions going on, people going to the, um, you know, the mission to the moon. Um, all these things were, were fantastic, and science was a big thing in grade school. You know, they, you know, we, you know, we always wanted more. We wanted to know how to, how to build robots and if we'd ever be able to do that. Right. And today, a lot of the technology that's there, like with robotics, but the schools, a lot of the schools, especially at the grade school level, the emphasis isn't on science anymore. You know, we've kind of diverted into all kinds of lesser, uh, some something's more social oriented. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, and it just, it's a shame because a lot of the kids growing up today, they don't understand what they're missing. Yeah. And it's hard to miss something if you don't know it's there. Well, not only that, but there's, there's a core process that I think we're missing in the way that we teach our young people. You know, I was in the store recently and I saw these wonderful little kits 
that you can get, whether they're robotics, there might be chemistry, there might be different things. And they're actually prepackaged with everything you need to build a very specific device. And that's cool, but there's very little flexibility with it to allow the person to experiment. If you don't build it exactly according to the directions, it won't work. At least that's the impression I got. It's probably got a little more flexibility than I thought. But the question I would ask is, you see a few people coming and going that are younger, coming out of school, coming into the industry and working at the plants, right? Mm -hmm. You see a lot of these kids? Yeah. So here's here's my question. Um, We talked earlier in this conversation about how people are growing more dependent on the idea that, well, if this doesn't work, just replace it, right? Yeah. Are you seeing that more and more with the new kids coming in? Are they actually problem solving to figure out what the cause is, or are they just saying, well, it's broke, let's fix it, let's replace it? It's easier just to replace it and put a new piece in. Uh, They don't Mm. really care as far as what actually failed, if it's a a recurring failure. Uh And I can't say that it's every every young person. Uh, We have a couple of unique people. Uh, one fellow was a bartender. Huh. Came in and he's he has to be one of the sharpest people I ever knew. Yeah, uh, a young fellow. And uh, yeah, there's, there's a, a couple I know that were really good, but the majority, it just seems like the culture is like, well, uh, the attitude too is, especially as far as being technicians. Well, the engineers will tell me what to do, and what they want to see is a work order that comes down and says, go replace this. Right. And as far as testing it, or post maintenance tests, anything like that. That's the engineer's problem. When I was in and programming, it was the same type of thing. Of course, that's even yeah. 20 years ago when I was doing that. It was the kids coming out of school didn't really want to troubleshoot a module. They were more interested in, well, I'll just write a new one. I can write a new one quicker than I can troubleshoot it. And yeah. I'll admit, there are times that that's the case, but there are also times when a quick glance through the code can reveal the core problem and boom you fix it and then you're done in, in 10 or 15 minutes and boom yeah. it, it's done but it, it, again this reliance on not necessarily always a technology solution but more on the quick solution yeah the quick fix and I yeah, think but we don't learn from quick fixes though but no we don't you could have uh, you could have a certain type of chip that's used in a multitude of boards and that one particular component, if, if it's in a failure mode, you know, based on temperature, it could be right. based on time, it could be something after 20 years that this certain component is fa- it starts failing. And it's used, like I said, it could be used in autos, it could be used in planes. Yeah. But if it's never troubleshot to that level, nobody will ever know. There was a book, and I'll bet you've read it, that kind of as an understory talked about the idea that things would get replaced and they'd forgotten how to fix them and they were starting to run out of parts. Do you remember a story to that effect? That sounds familiar. Yeah. It also sounds familiar with what we're dealing with too. Well, yeah, it does. But yeah. a lot of that parts are... I, I remember some of the stories that where parts, they do. You Either the parts become obsolete or the parts become unavailable. Mm-hmm. Um, Anybody working on a 65 Chevy nowadays has got to have, I mean, you've got to find a resource if you're going to restore that car. And sometimes that can be pretty pricey, finding somebody to do the mill work and so forth to get your parts. And I wonder, again, this this throwaway society that we've been living in for the last 20-some-odd years, um, it projecting forward, how long do you think it's going to be before we start having trouble? I would, I be, personally, I believe we're going to start seeing it probably... Uh, as soon as it's in the next, even now, 
you know, we're seeing a lot of it just because people can't troubleshoot. If you have a large complex system, where do you start? Yeah. You just can't keep replacing boards. If it's something that, maybe it's something that has 155 boards in it, you know, it's a, yeah. a very big complex system. How do you, like, for instance, the building building security in a skyscraper. Right. Well, I mean, you could be looking at racks and racks and racks, and if you have something that, it's not a simple, like, well, it's got to be isolated to this one. If you got something right. that's affecting multiple floors, how do you, where do you start? So unless you have, uh, like, a, the tech, uh, you, you train your mind to think mm -hmm. that way, to isolate a problem or, or to narrow it down to maybe from a schematic. Right. You know, this part of the schematic is fine. Get, you know, forget right. about that. And this part's fine. This is the part you focus. And you learned actually, you can break it down to, well, let's, let's try this and see what it does. Let's see if we can repeat the problem. Right. But if you're just trying to replace things, and a lot of times you could uh, turn something off, replace a part, turn it on, and it'll work for a little bit. And then six hours later, it fails again. And exactly. six days, it fails again. We were talking about something just like this just a little bit earlier this afternoon in that um, I just did some updates on your website. Mm -hmm. And thankfully, they're working. <laughs> working beautifully. Um, but in the course of going in and looking at things, we've talked, um, there are things in the industry that are changing that are requiring us to really look at some serious changes on your website, mm -hmm. primarily because, well, Flash is becoming a thing of the past. It's going to yeah. stop working soon, or at least so we hear. Um, yeah. The WordPress version that you're using actually is kind of old. I think. How old did you say your site was? Gosh, I think this. I think we first put this up in 2004. So that puts us what almost 14 years. Wow, that's a long yeah. time for a website to be up. Yeah, and it's still. It's, I mean, granted, it's 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 awesome. It still functions well. Yeah. It's still smooth. It's got a great look and feel to it. But it's dated. <laughs> it is dated. It is dated. Yeah. And you know, you've got a lot of blog entries on there, so I can't. Mm -hmm think about, I cannot comprehend myself, the idea of migrating that to a new website. I don't even want to think about what that would involve. Yeah. Um, but uh, again, it's the, it's the same issue. There are things in there that I, as having been a web designer and developer for years, um, there are things in there that I don't know how to address, how to yeah. fix, how to, how to work with. And so... Um, We've been talking about the challenges of updating that, whether it's a nuclear plant, whether it's a, a, a life support system, or whether it's a website. The same challenges exist that you talk about with troubleshooting and planning ahead for maintenance over the long haul. Um, and we talked a moment ago about how we see this coming back to bite our civilization here pretty soon. Um, do you think? Go ahead. Yeah, I think we're, we're changing too fast because we're never, we're to a point where, for instance, uh, you can look at Windows. I mean, Windows keeps coming out with a new version before they ever work out the bugs on the on the, the, the recent version. So even, even more than that, they're constantly doing updates. I would have to say that uh, over the last month, I've had at least three or four updates come through that had to be applied. So yeah. that's one a week. Mm-hmm. I mean, I can remember back, I don't know if you remember this, but back in the uh, mid-80s, before um, the mid-80s, software was updated on average once every two years. That's right. And it was tested for months. And not only just one round of testing, but it went through three or four different rounds of testing before it was actually released. And it was usually pretty solid. 
Right. They might have an incremental release six months after the initial release, but that was it. And then you had that software, it worked solid for years. Yeah, nowadays, we're seeing updates coming out every every few weeks. Yeah, part of that part of that goes into the business model too. Uh, I know from when I uh, when I worked years ago at a manufacturing company, uh, there's a lot of things that call progress payments. When you're building a, a product for a customer, uh, you get incentives for having all the, the drawings done by a certain. Uh, oh, okay, yeah. So maybe the top level by a certain date. Yeah, and the thing was. Well, just get the drawings done. We'll fix it in production. And sometimes it's not an easy fix in production. And sometimes it's like, well, we'll put it out, you know, and then we'll have a recall if, it, if it's exactly. better. And we see that, I mean, the auto industry is the most obvious one that everybody can relate to. You buy a brand new vehicle, and a month later you got a recall. Yeah. You know, bring it back. We figure how many people are going to bring it back. If they haven't had a problem yet, they let it go. Right. You know, and it's, it's a shame, but we've really gotten to that point where it's just, you know, quantity, not quality. And, exactly. it's, and that can bite us with, I mean, they worry about it with aircraft, some of the uh, recent aircraft uh, crashes uh, that they're still looking at. The wonderful work that uh, SpaceX is doing to create rockets that are reusable. Yeah, uh, it, it that's work. phenomenal. It, it, it really is. And they, they're now working on, they've renamed the Big Falcon rocket to the Starship. I don't know if you saw that. Yeah. Uh, but that's, that's kind of exciting. And they're hoping to actually launch the crew vehicle, I think, for its maiden flight sometime first part of next year, I think. Yeah. So that'll be exciting to watch. But we've come up to the end of our time. Um, I've loved talking with you. It's, yeah, it's always a pleasure. You. Oh, yeah, we have such fun. It's always a pleasure uh, to come to Arizona. Yeah. And uh, so thanks for coming, and we'll, we'll see you again next time. Oh, uh, this is KWAB Radio signing off.